Good evening and welcome. I'm your host, Mr. Ramsey, and tonight I have a collection of four chilling short horror stories to help you get into the Halloween spirit. As always, please remember to leave a like if you enjoyed, and also double check if you're subscribed. I've recently noticed that a lot of my subscriptions have been cancelled and I had to resubscribe to some of my favourite creators. Anyway, without further ado, let's begin. Number 1 I guess it's kind of surprising that a town as small as ours has a corn maze, but Mr Gregor puts it on every year. No one thought he'd do it this year though. Brent, his only kid, died in a hit and run last spring, and the heart sort of went out of him. Brent was a good guy, the kind of golden boy every dad dreams of. Good grades, good looks, good head on his shoulders. Never found who killed him. People say it must have been a stranger passing through, but no one heads down those country lanes unless they mean to. Kinda weird to think there's a murderer just walking around and no one knows who they are. On opening night, all the kids fill up their parents' pickup trucks and drive to the Gregor farm. To our surprise, he doesn't even charge. Usually it's a dollar a go. Instead, he lets us all rush in, everyone excited to discover the exit first. The gang and I laugh and whoop, using our flashlights to follow the twists and turns. There's no light out here, but the full moon, and it adds an edge of danger. We wander for an hour, then two. Megan complains her feet hurt, and Camden's eyes are itchy. I swear we've passed the same fork ten times. None of the kids we meet are having any luck either. Maybe, Megan says, voice small as a firefly. Maybe there isn't a way out. I don't want to agree with her. If she's right, I don't know what it'd mean. Then the yelling starts. There's a bright light at the maze entrance. As it grows bigger and brighter, meaner, I smell smoke. Fire! The screams are desperate. Kids rush our waist, stumbling into and over each other. Megan gets knocked down and I pull her up. What do we do? I call to Camden. Break through the rows. His eyes are wild with fear. The stalks are too dry. Whole thing's going to go. Everyone has the same idea. We rush forward, battling corn out of the way, stomping it underfoot. Megan falls behind, winded. I don't want to leave her, but I'm scared. The air is thick and acrid. If I hesitate, I might not make it. Camden bursts through the line of corn first, whooping in relief. Just as I breach the final row, I hear the familiar, spine-tingling sound of a gunshot. Camden's yell of joy turns to a scream of pain. I stumble into the open to see Mr. Gregor standing over Camden, reloading his shotgun. Other kids lie around him, blood soaking the dry grass. I want to run, but I'm frozen. Mr. Gregor doesn't look at me as he methodically slides in his shells. Nothing personal, he rasps. Just what's fair. If I don't get to have my kid, no one else gets to have theirs. Number 2 The cold chill of northern winter in my bones. The quickened pacing of my heart beneath a sharp sting in my chest. I sensed my world dimming and drifting away. It was finally happening. I rose from the floor and stumbled to the desk in the corner of my darkened bedroom. Walking felt like nothing more than robotic synchronicities working solely to drive my body further to its goal. As I reached the desk, I grasped at the chair and thought about the act of sitting down. 
the action was no longer a reasonable task for me. All I could see was someone else performing it. Someone else achieving the goal of sitting in a chair comfortably. What is wrong with me? The anger of being unable to achieve such a small feat boiled within me. I couldn't help it. I threw the chair across the room. The pounding waves of aggression crashing into my mind were becoming relentless. I gathered myself. I would come back to existence as I knew it. The stinging in my chest grew stronger. I lifted my shirt and glared at the open wound on my sternum. The wound festered and increased in length. I watched as a piece of my skin fell before my eyes, revealing the bone beneath man's flesh. Hours ago, this was just a bite mark. A man in Central Park had attacked me without being provoked. I could see the crazed look in his eyes. They rolled in his head as if not connected to anything at all. Now, it was as if my body was rotting away. I felt the anger grow stronger, my mind becoming unhinged. I was beginning to accept that nothing would calm the storm brewing within me. I knew I was driven to this point by the visceral hatred roaming through my veins. I knew I was going to go mad beyond all recognition. I knew I was overreacting, yet I couldn't stop. Most importantly, I felt the urgent need to make others feel this pain. The anger spread so deep that my body clenched the desk before me, and the portion in my grasp splintered into wood chips. My transformation was complete. I knew that I was nothing more than a backseat driver in my mind. No longer in control, I longed for one thing. That's when the door to my bedroom opened, and with very timid grace, my mother stepped in slowly. My eyes fixed upon her, and the rage inside me intensified. She stayed idling by the door, and with concerned eyes she glanced over the room, ending with her gaze on me. She could tell I was hurting from something, so naturally she spread her arms. She always loved hugs. I bolted across the room. I could see her widening her arms in anticipation of my embrace. I wrapped my arms around her and sunk my teeth into her shoulder. She couldn't have known I was already dead. Number 3 The discovery was first made on June 2nd, 2015 by a man named Jalen Walker, a man plagued with severe OCD. According to him, he noticed a change when his steps to get from his house to the nearby gas station were slightly less than the usual 1,374. Alarmed by this, since Jalen always made sure to retrace his steps 20 more times until he was positive that it now took 1,373 steps. After police were called into the gas station to perform a wellness check on the man, Jalen insisted that the city check their census records, and that once they did, they would see he was correct. One week later, after receiving a hundred calls reporting similar circumstances in their neighbourhoods, the city planner Rachel Henley decided to look into the rumours in order to put the public's mind at ease. However, once doing so, Mrs Henley was floored to find that the city did indeed move two inches south since 2012. Thinking that this could be a result of a major waterline rupturing, a small crew was tasked to investigate the source of the movement, led by Mrs Henley. It would take nearly a week for the crews to find anything out of the ordinary. Then, on June 16th, one of the contractors named Jackson Lee found a small fissure roughly two inches in size, roughly a half mile from the initial sighting. 
It was reported that once Mr. Lee had found the fissure, he had shined his flashlight down the fissure. We do not know this for sure, as shortly after finding the source, Mr. Lee would become inconsolable. After several days, he finally was able to say a single sentence. Close the gap. Unfortunately, Mr. Lee would go on to commit suicide after being released from the hospital. Curious to what had made Mr. Lee so distraught, Rachel Henley and local geologist professor Dr. Neil Gallagher decided to investigate the fissure further. Once down there, they discovered that the fissure had separated by over a foot since the report Mr. Lee gave. Wanting to investigate further, Rachel decided to rappel down into the fissure while reporting everything she saw to Dr. Gallagher. As she descended, she noted that the fissure seemed to go down almost indefinitely and would become incredibly spacious. After she reached the end of her rope, Rachel reported that she could no longer see the walls of the fissure and that she was above a massive open space. After pulling out her camera and taking several photos, a scream could be heard echoing from the chasm. Quickly looking at his computer, Dr. Gallagher's eyes widened. It was a massive, perfectly symmetrical face. He scrolled to the next photo, but before he could look at it, his walkie-talkie exploded with sound. It just blinked. He looked back at his computer and screamed. The face was now staring directly at him, and to his horror, began to smile. Number 4 When I was 10, something happened I couldn't understand, but I get it now. My father was violent. I mean, the kind of malevolent that would have him standing over me heavy and frothing, vain face, purple and red splotches blooming like some living wallpaper. It frightened me to the core and I'd cower, shaking and clenching, doing anything I could not to look into those piercing eyes. If there were needles, I swear they would have stitched me to the floor. But as angry as he would get at me for even the most frivolous of actions, he would never lay a finger on me. Instead, he would grab a willow switch hanging in the living room, stomp all the way up the attic and slam the door behind him. This might have been the worst part of it all. However, while the fear of punishment settled down, the dread of what came next made me feel like I was sinking beneath a mirror. He'd scream bloody murder up in that room. I couldn't hear the whistle of the woods, but the throaty, curdling shrieks that erupted for the next half an hour were enough to make me feel like puking. My mother would scoop me up during these times and cradle me. She'd sing Rockabye Baby and shush me until it was over. On more than one occasion, she explained to me how lucky I was to have a father who didn't beat me. She reminded me of how my father had been beaten terribly by his father with this very switch he kept on the wall. We were very lucky that he found a way to break the cycle of abuse and that he did this for me. Once things had settled, he would unlock the attic door and come down, breathless and bloody, gripping that switch with white knuckles. He'd take a shower. I remember thinking he was great at concealing his wounds, or maybe that the upstairs shower had some magic about it. Strangely, all of this ended when I was ten. One Sunday morning, my mother and father put out my good clothes, and we all got dressed. I asked them what it was all about, but they were silent and solemn. We drove our station wagon out into the woods, and I was surprised to see my aunts and uncles collected under the dense canopy of trees. From the back of our wagon, my uncles pulled out a covered form. It was my grandfather, and I remember being shocked to learn that he wasn't already dead. 
We buried him in silence in the depths of that forest. My father calmed after that. The switch stayed on the wall. Recently, my parents died, leaving me the house. In the attic, I discovered a bed rickety wooden with three giant leather straps. The stains on the frame and floor were telling. My grandfather had bled in my place due to my father's will to switch fates. Thank you all for listening. Links to the original stories can be found in the description. And if you made it this far, let me know what your plans are for this Halloween. I look forward to seeing what you're all up to. Feel free to check out my other socials where I'm more active and happy to chat with you all. Anyway, I'll catch you all in the next one. Good night.